Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, your podcast guide through Swedish history. I'm Chris and sitting on the other end of our kitchen table is Orsa recording this new episode with me. Hello, this is episode 86, and for most of this episode, though, we won't be coming to you from our trusty kitchen, as we usually do, but from out and about in Östergötland. A great many events in Swedish history, both things that we've covered so far on our journey and stuff that will occur later on, happened in this famous county, so we decided that the summer of 2023 would be the perfect time to go out and explore a few sites we haven't visited yet and take our microphone out with us on a little road trip. Indeed, and it was great fun, but before we jump into that part of the history, we should probably start with a Swedish phrase of the week, and this one is fastnat mehregget i brevlåden. And that one means stuck with the beard in the letterbox. Uh, pretty strange one there. I don't know. I don't have a beard. Chris has a beard. Have you ever been stuck with it in a letterbox? It's not really that long to get stuck. True, true. You have to have more of a Father Christmas style beard, I guess, to risk being caught in, in anything, let alone a letterbox. This phrase was actually recommended to us by Andrew on Twitter, or perhaps we should call it X now. Anyway, recommended to us back in July after it was actually referenced in the Wall Street Journal, which is pretty cool. It's a good phrase, so thank you for sharing it with us, Andrew. Yeah, I like this one a lot. It's got that classic style of Swedish phrase or idiom with the, yeah, just the sort of scenario that's going on in the phrase. And it basically means that you've messed with something you can't handle, gotten in trouble, or sometimes quite simply bitten off more than you can chew, as we might say in English. And the article in the Wall Street Journal that Andrew sent us was actually a review of a biography of Swedish naturalist Carl von Linné, or Linnaeus, as he's uh, usually called in the English-speaking world. And uh, we uh, won't summarise that biography for you, but just tell you that he's certainly someone we will cover later on in the timeline. We will indeed, but now let's get our beards unstuck uh, from the letterboxes and head back to Östergötland. The county stretches from Lake Vettern in the west to the Baltic Sea in the east. It borders Sörmland in the north, Kalmar and Jönköping to the south, and Västergötland to the west, basically. Technically, we will actually visit Jönköping County too in this episode, as we also take the boat over to the island of Visingsö in Lake Vettern, but most of the time we will be in Östergötland County. We won't summarise the events that we're going to talk about now, but we'll let past Chris and past also explain those. Now, as always with our outside recordings, a minor health warning on the sound quality. It's a bit different than we are when we talk from the kitchen here. And it was a classic Swedish summer this year, so there was a, a fair bit of rain and wind at some points, but it should be okay to listen to. Likewise, one of the sites we visited let us record inside, so there's some brilliant echo there that adds a lot to the atmosphere in the recording. Yeah, so if it's not the sound quality that you're used to, just bear with us at a few points during the episode. We'll pop back in at various points to introduce each section, 
But first, we will head down south to the city of Linköping, where we will explore Linköping Castle. Great. Let's head on in the car, or on the train, actually, down to Linköping. So, this is day one of our trip around Östergötland, and we're in Linköping today. Uh, we've just been in the castle, uh, which used to be the old bishop's residence, and we're about to go in the cathedral a bit later on. But we thought we'd tell you a little bit more about uh, what we saw inside the castle. So, we're going back all the way to Birger Jarl's son's time. There was originally a few tiny buildings around in sort of like the, the 1200s, but it was Birger Jarl's son. Bishop Banked, one of those many bishops of Linköping we talked about who was part of the Bjelbu dynasty and in the sort of, yeah, 1200s, late 1200s a five-story defensive tower with open ramparts on the roof was built and there's loads of fun stuff that was uh, added on including a limestone reception building and a brick building being added to the north. This was when Bishop Banks' brother was King Magnus III or Magnus Lardulos and uh, he together actually the two brothers together donated land for a franciscan monastery that was founded in what's now one of just a, a random shopping square in the center of Linköping and it was at this time where Linköping got its town seal and its town charter but that was unfortunately lost but there is a seal itself that was uh, found with a lion from 1300s and there was a lion in the museum. There was a lion in the museum and the lion had written a note to all the visitors asking uh, to be petted but not to be ridden because he had a bad back. So that's sweet of the lion to leave a note to, I suppose, younger visitors in the museum. So how about you tell us a little bit more about uh, this Bishop Banked and what he was doing as well, because he wasn't just Bishop Banked. No, he was the master builder and also Duke of Finland. So busy life, building and being a bishop and being the Duke. And yeah, like Chris said, he was the youngest son of Björjör Magnusson, Björjör Jarl, the last Jarl of Sweden. He was bishop 1286 to 1291. And yeah, saw most of these uh, cool buildings that we've uh, been looking at completed, but uh, the tower wasn't ready until nine years after his death in 1300. Yeah, so uh, this was, yeah, as we were saying, is when the bishop's residence was being extended, and there's a tower there, and the top floor of the tower had a crenellated parapet where crossbowmen could fire on approaching enemy forces, which is uh, slightly different to how uh, bishops live today. <laughs> in the modern day i think there's less space for crossbowmen in the castle they were talking about how there was a building era in Östergötland, and this was because there was some uh, limestone quarries around from way back from the 11th century and uh, there was in the area north of linköping in an area called vreta and that's why there's so many stone churches built in Östergötland during the 12th and 13th century. And in Östergötland, bricks were used as an exclusive building material during the 13th century. And the idea was to construct buildings out of bricks. And that was an idea that was brought to Sweden by monks from the continent, where brick had been used as a normal building material for ages. And the sons of Bürger were the first people to build non-religious buildings in Sweden out of brick. So such as the palaces at Vardstener and Alsner. And also the, the tower that we're standing outside now and looking at, at the castle here in Linköping, that was also built by them at this time out of brick. 
They also helped build the, uh, at various points in time, the construction of the cathedral here in Linköping. And uh, that required a load of different people and loads of different stuff, doesn't it, also? Yeah, the construction of the cathedral required a lodge of craftsmen. I didn't know that was the plural of craftsmen. Like, it's a school of fish and a lodge of craftsmen. I suppose they just means a lot. And also, with that amount of people, it needs good organization and funding. The largest cost were wages, material and transport. Stonemasons, sculptors, carpenters, blacksmiths, bricklayers, they all worked on the construction. Then there were workers to quarry the stone and transport it from the quarries to the building site. The church and its building fund, known as Fabrica in Latin, received its income from taxes, tithes, tariffs, donations, tolls and indulgence. And I don't know how, if that is how they're funding the current reconstruction of the cathedral that's ongoing. I'm looking at it now. I don't know if they've... Uh, received donations or they've increased the taxes for the people in the diocese because uh, right now the entire uh, tower of the cathedral is covered in scaffolding and there's a little lift of workmen going up and down the the tower so it's getting a 21st century uh, remodeling as well yeah there's loads of stuff going on you might even be able to hear some of the work on in the background as we're talking but yeah it's a pretty big deal and it was a big deal back in the 1300s and the late 1200s as well because yeah this building fund the fabrica got given a lot of money by magnus Lardulos, the king between 1280 and 1296 and that was a huge period of building work here it actually slowed down a little bit in 1291 when bishop bank died it seemed like he spent a lot of his money and time on this and in fact he spent so much money on this that after he died the uh, the diocese had so much debt and that meant that the construction work had to be brought to a halt for a bit until they paid off all of his debts and that meant that the cathedral was built in stages depending on when they had money and when they didn't so uh yeah there was a lot of stuff going on here anything else you want to say about the cathedral and the castle i'm gonna be a little bit silly and say that my favorite bit of the excellent museum highly recommend a visit the best bit was actually when i went to the toilet and in the toilet they had an exhibition on medieval style loop paper and the history of what we uh, wipe our behinds with that was very funny yeah and then i had to go as well just to see that but uh yeah so if you're ever at linchoping castle museum go to the toilet even if you don't need to <laughs> that was so cool after the castle, we went on a tour of Linköping Cathedral, which was also super interesting, but that is something we might return to in a future episode. But do check out our social media for some photos from there as well, and they're also on our website. Yes, please do. But now it's time to head off almost directly west from Linköping to Vardstainer Abbey on what was day two of our little tour. Vardstainer is a place made famous by St. Birgitta. So if you want to hear more about her, either before or after this section, maybe listen to her own episode, which was episode 60. 
But before we enter into the Abbey, we want to give a special thanks to Lin and the team at the Abbey Museum for letting us into the museum before it opened to the public on a very rainy day in August and for letting us record there. You'll actually hear Lin sing for us in a bit, which was such a great privilege. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much to Lynn and everyone else at the Abbey Museum. So let's head there right now. We're now in Vardstena Abbey or the Vardstena Abbey Museum. We're actually in the Kloster Hall and you can probably hear the echo. 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 Which is uh, very cool, isn't it? This is a very cool room. This is a beautiful room. It makes me want to talk a little more quietly because uh, this room was the chapter hall. So when this was the monastery, it was used for sort of regular meeting and the abbess held uh, kind of lectures on the different monasterical rules. So it's a little bit like a church or a chapel. I think that's what's making me want to speak quietly and reverently. There's a image here. There is a little altar here and an image of uh, the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus. We've very, very kindly been let into the museum uh, before anybody else, before the public, uh, because Lynn, who works here, we got in touch and uh, said that we were going to come and we wouldn't mind, you know, paying the normal entry fee and just walking around, but would it be okay to record a few things inside? And she said, yes, and come before it opens and I'll let you in and show you around. So a massive, massive thank you to Lynn and everyone else at the museum here. I think we'll go somewhere else to talk about the Abbey in case that echo here is pretty crazy so we'll go into a different room and uh, continue from there and so this is the abbey but it's also the museum and there's a sort of a bit of a special relationship between all the buildings that are remaining here so why don't you tell us what lynn told us also so there's a sort of trinity ironically i suppose since this is a church matter between the museum that's here in the old abbey that's open for the public and you can come and visit and then there's the church which is just a congregation church in the church of sweden run by the same organization that runs all church of sweden churches and that was originally built as the abbey church for them to go and pray in yes and then there is the still active Bridgetine monastery with nuns still living here and but they have a slightly more modern building closer to the lake the Bridgetine order isn't open to the public as such but they do run a guest home so if you book in advance you can go and stay overnight with the nuns great and we're now in a sort of a side room of the museum we're standing right in front of a knight with a big uh, black cross on his white shield and uh, spear and armor and, and a mace and in front of a really great family tree of the Bielbu dynasty uh, which we actually bought this as a postcard in uh, Lynn Shelping Castle but it's great because it shows you the very first beginnings of the Bielbu dynasty uh, up to Bjarne's dad and his two uncles who were also Jarls and his cousins who were Jarls and him and his brothers and everyone all the way down to uh, Magnus Ladulos and uh, his sons Eric, Valdemar and Birja who had a lot of fighting together which we talked about a lot but how about we talk a little bit more about Vardstein at Abbey because we mentioned it in uh, St. Birgitta's episode but this is a bit more about the actual building itself rather than St. Birgitta. 
Yeah, so the Abbey Pax Maria, commonly referred to as Vadstena Abbey, is situated here on Lake Vietton in the Diocese of Linköping. And the monastery is one of nuns from the Brigittine Order. It was active from 1346 until 1595 when the Reformation took place in Sweden, but has then been reactivated, so to say, uh, from 1963, and it became an autonomous abbey here in 1991. So it was a break for a couple of hundred years due to Protestantism, uh, but glad that they're up and running again for the last 30 years. The abbey started on one of the farms that were donated to it by the king, but the town of Vadstena grew up around it, and it was the mother house of the Brigittine order, the monastic order that St. Brigitta started from 1346 to the Reformation in 1595. Yeah, and we said the abbey was founded in 1346 by St. Brigitta with the assistance of King Magnus IV of Sweden and his Queen Blanche. And they made this will donating these farms, including that of Vardstena, uh, to the abbey by St. Brigitta. St. Brigitta started planning and designing the place. And there had been a building here actually from the middle of the 1200s because uh, Birgit's brother, Elof, he wrote a letter from that site in 1268 and it was back then the building was sort of like a royal castle and it remained in this secular royal residence until the middle of the 1340s when it was given by King Magnus and Queen Blanche to St. Birgitta to be the foundation of the future monastery and uh, but because it was quite like a pleasure castle it was a bit of a fancy castle it had to be changed a little bit and uh, the Swedish was the, the translation of the Swedish was best probably is like humbled so they had to lower the roof St. Birgitta while she got given the land she had to go around and actually try and get the plans approved by the Pope because it was going to cost a lot of money and this was when she was actually in Rome meeting the Pope and campaigning and talking to him for ages and so it wasn't until uh, a lot later on uh, until 1370 when the Pope approved St. Birgitta's plans but he said she had to make a few changes to it. So it was consecrated in 1384 but St. Birgitta, if you remember from her episode, she had died in 1373 and the next year her remains was moved from Rome to the Abbey here. So she didn't actually see her grand monastic plans come into form herself, but rather it was her daughter, Katharina, who arrived back to this site in 1374 with the relics of her mother. Then she really found only a few novices under one religious superior here. So they chose Katharina as their abbess, but then she died in 1381, and it was not until three years later that the abbey was properly blessed by the Bishop of Linköping. They got their first proper fancy burial two years later when Boo Jonsson Griep was uh, buried at the abbey. And in the abbey's annals, it says that against him, not even the king, Master Albert, could assert himself in any way, even though he occasionally tried. Because, yeah, we know that Boo Jonsson Griep had uh, a lot of power but he also had good relationships with the monastery here in Vardstena and uh, that's because he had good relations with Birja Ulfsson who was the son of St. Birgitta and he was one of the executors of Bojansen Grip's will. 
The first recognised abbess was Inge Jörg Knut's daughter, who was a granddaughter of St. Birgitta, but not a daughter of Katharina, that sort of first half-abbess. She was the daughter of another daughter of St. Birgitta, Maria. And in 1391, St. Birgitta was canonised, and the um, remains were moved to the Abbey Church in 1394, and that greatly added to how she was seen and uh, what fame she had in the time. It was in 1400 when the town that had grown around the abbey was given town privileges by uh, Margareta and King Eric. So we're getting a lot closer to the current timeline uh, when we're looking at stuff like this. And Lean, who uh, is in charge of the museum here, says that uh, they're a little bit uh, proud of their town privileges because Vodstena isn't actually the biggest of places, but uh, they still got to have town privileges and not be just a village. And the abbey and the religious life here greatly influenced the town itself. The inhabitants here produced religious manuscripts and liturgical textiles of the very highest class, among other arts and crafts. Bridgetine literature consisted mostly of translations into Swedish of portions of the Bible or of the legends of the saints. And some of the manuscripts that were produced here are still held in the Royal Library in Stockholm, including two in Swedish in St. Birgitta's own handwriting. So that's quite cool that that's still preserved. And then there are also some pieces kept in the university libraries of Uppsala and Lund. The abbey has always been greatly favoured by the royal houses and nobility, and it became the spiritual centre of the country, but it was also one of the greatest landowners in Sweden. The abbey also managed a hospital and a sort of retirement home from at least 1401 is the earliest mention of that. And then there's just a few other uh, interesting events. Uh, Queen Philippa is buried here uh, at the church, which we're going to go and hopefully have a look in a moment. And because, remember, she died um, without having a child, so that meant Eric of Pomerania was left in a bit of a dodgy situation. And we also saw that during all the civil wars and the revolts going on, the bailiff of many castles, Jesse Eriksson, tried to seek asylum here at the Abbey, but he was forced out and arrested when they wouldn't let him in. So that's, uh, that's pretty pretty bad. And without going too much into the future of the chronology of uh, our journey in the podcast, but in 1495, a printing press was established here in the Abbey, and that was the first one in Sweden. So the country's very first printing press was here in the Abbey. Unfortunately, though, it was destroyed after only six months in a fire. How about we go back into the chapter room and have a look around and uh, describe what the building looks like? Sounds good. So, yes, it looks like one of those uh, traditional church buildings with the vaulted ceilings and the columns holding up. There's four columns in the middle of the room. And, uh, yeah, there's actually some paintings and some images on a couple of the walls. You can see the people in the, the classic Christian thing where they have the that circle around their heads. And there's a person who looks like he might be a king and might be a queen up there on the wall. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. 
stony slabbed floors and there's now chairs around for people to uh, to sit on when they come in for the guided tours and, and do the singing. So we're now in a small square room which is known as the Relic Room and that's because this is where Saint Begitta came to uh, have some of her visions or try and interpret what her visions meant. And there are two relics of Begitta in this room. The first one, the, the really impressive one, is, is the chest that was used to transport her bones from Italy to Sweden in 1373 to 1374. And I remember talking about in the episode about how what a crazy journey that would have been to transport a body from Italy to Sweden in 1373 when you know the Black Death is basically still ravaging the country and so it's a I don't know it's probably a two meter long chest but it's not very wide at all so she probably didn't have very wide hips um, she's put in this crate and it's wooden with lots of metal sort of strips going around it and it's uh, super super interesting and what else is here, also? Well, inside the chest, there is a very small piece of Begitta's hip bone. And this was uh, gifted from the Brigittine nunnery in Rome to the museum so that the museum would actually have a genuine relic and piece of Saint Begitta. So we are really standing in the presence of, of greatness in the sense of the presence of her remains, albeit a tiny bit of bone. And I'm going to move about half a meter to here because they have made a marking in the floor where they think Begitta stood when she received her vision and the message from God that she was going to start a religious order. So you talk about the uh, paintings uh, on the wall and in the ceiling, and I'll see if I get any visions from standing here. Yeah, and so Lynn was saying how um, whilst these are a bit of a restoration of um, the older paintings, these are actually representative of what it would have looked like when uh, St. Brigitte was here, because uh, a king much later on in the timeline, Johan III, um, he liked all this kind of stuff. So he went around, and uh, including in Linköping Cathedral, where we were yesterday, but also in places like this, he made sure these places all look really good, which was in the late... 1500s and uh, we were saying about the chest being here and this is actually the room where the chest was kept when it was returned to the abbey it was either kept here or the church just over the road but um, when it was in the abbey itself it was here so it's, it's in its right location as well did you get any visions I, I didn't get any visions. I don't think I'm in the right mindset maybe for receiving them. But I got a feeling that we should go down and see if Lynn wants to sing some Brigitine songs for us in the chapter room with the lovely acoustics. And we'll get a feeling for what this place would have sounded like when it was full of nuns who were singing and working and praying and living their monastic life.
Thank you so much. Thanks, Amika. We're now up on the top floor with this huge sort of almost alleyway or corridor which has lots of these different almost cubicles to each side and uh, Lynn was just telling us about it uh, so how about you tell us what she said Orsa? So all these cubicles uh, little doorways to the sides they were the cells where the nuns lived or the rooms where they lived but when this stopped being a monastery Lynn told us that for a while during and after the 30 years war this was used as a home for veteran soldiers they lived here with their families and so then these uh, these little rooms were uh, boarded up the, I'm standing in like the doorway to one of them so they were boarded up and the veterans lived here and then after that it was used as a mental health hospital and it was even a correctional facility for a while and then Lynn said that when they were actually going to make this into a museum and sort of historians were looking around here there was a young historian who just tapped on a wall a little bit and it was hollow I took a bit of the wall out and found these uh, this extra bit of the building, the boarded up rooms where the nuns had lived. And so they're now part of the exhibition. So you could say that this building has gone through several stages from the private palace of the Bielbu family to being an abbey, to after the Reformation being used as uh, a home for veterans. That was in the 1640s, the Vardstena Veterans Home opened for wounded soldiers and officers with their wives and children. So families were housed in small flats in the former nuns' dormitory. So where we're standing now, there were 59 rooms that were renovated into 20 homes. And apparently it says life in the veterans' home was characterised by strict discipline and severe punishment. And punishment might include a fine, a prison sentence or even eviction. And begging, drunkenness and gambling were all prohibited. So yeah, even though they were retired, they still had some harsh military discipline. And it was in the 1780s when the Vardstainer Veterans' Home was shut down. So it lasted well after the Thirty Years' War. And the last remaining war veteran was named Hans Leonhofert. And he stayed in the building for eight years after his closure despite repeated efforts to remove him so he was a he was a squatter and then yeah there was a period where it was a, a sanatorium for the city and the impoverished and sick people but it was one of the largest psychiatric hospitals in the country with several hundred patients and many employees that was such a cool experience and beautiful place. The singing especially was gorgeous, but also learning so much about the Abbey, both from St. Birgitta's time, but also the life it had after the Reformation in Sweden. 
Absolutely. It was really interesting to learn about the time it was used as a veterans home for the 30 years war veterans and all that other stuff that it was used for throughout history all the way up to the modern day. And after this, we actually walked about 20 metres or so across the square to the nearby church, where we saw the grave of Queen Philippa, which is in the Abbey's church. And the church is still used for services to this very day, and it was another beautiful building. And we managed to fit in a great deal of stuff on this trip to Varsdain, and we'd really recommend anyone who's in Ostergotland to go and have a look for themselves. There's so much to see and learn, and we're looking forward to going back on a slightly less range day as it's a beautiful place even though it was beautiful even though it was wet but it might be even nicer to see the town in sunshine for sure but luckily for us the sun managed to sneak out from behind the clouds later in the day as we took the roll on roll off ferry from grenna which is known for its mint flavored sweets and sticks of rock over to Visingsur for a look around a few famous castles and the strategically important set of woods there. Yes, so let's jump back in time one last time and see what we managed to look at on the island of Visingsur. So we have taken the ferry across from Grenna and are now on Visingsur Island, pretty much bang on in the middle of Lake Vietton. And this is a place that you'll recognize from several previous episodes. Yeah, there's uh, loads of cool stuff that we're going to go and have a look at, including Ness Castle, the first masonry built castle in Sweden. Uh, but we're currently outside Visings Boy Castle really cool we're going to post some pictures on our website and on social media and it's perhaps not difficult to imagine all the activity that would have gone on uh, in and around Visings Boy Castle in its glory days this is a bit further on from the timeline but it's really super interesting uh, so we're going to talk about it a bit now and as I also said we're right by the water on uh, Visings Ur by the Lake Vetten and the, you can see why they chose the, the site for this castle because it's today it's surrounded by grass banks but it's right by the water you can see mainland Sweden and it's a big building today but it would have been an even bigger building back in the day it had f more wings and uh, different parts of the castle around a courtyard that uh, unfortunately doesn't exist at the moment it's just the one part of the main building and it had four towers was uh, built and run mainly by the Braha family and including uh, Count Per Braha the Younger who was a drot and governor of Finland from the middle of the 1640s and a fun fact about him was he introduced the postal service to Finland. We're now hiding from the rain underneath the castle almost. There's a sort of celery cutaway here that we're standing under but also will give us a bit more about the history of the castle. Business Boy was completed in all its splendor in 1662 and then served as a residence for Count Per Brahe, the younger. The construction, on the other hand, was started a hundred years earlier by Per Brahe, the elder. In 1561, he was appointed count and was simply assigned to Visingsör by then King Erik XIV and started building this magnificent castle. The castle was adorned with gilded busts of members of the Brauer family. 
The countship and the castle was at its greatest under Pabar the Younger's time. He would become the castle's county's last count, though. It then comprised of 12 square miles of 20 parishes in Småland, Västergötland and Östergötland County. Visingsö was thus the strategic centre for the country's largest county at the time. Such a large county demanded its seat of lordship. Under by the elders' time, bricks was taken for the construction, among other things, from the monastery building in Alvastra, which we passed on the way here from Vardstena to Grenna. To meet the need for brick, a factory was constructed in Grenna, a town also founded in 1652. So that's where the ferry left from. And after that, Perbar the elder's son, Magnus Brahe, continued to expand the castle by building the southern extension. It's the part of those ruins that we see here today. But even a county can come to an end and with it leaves its castle in ruins. Count Bar the Younger died in 1680 at his seat Bugesund in Uppland. He was the last count and never found out what happened to his fantastic Visingsborg castle. That is because the countship here ceased after the Great Reduction, when Karl Eleventh confiscated masses of land, titles and property from the nobility to pay off Sweden's debts and reduce the power of the landed nobility. Therefore, the castle ended up in the possession of King Karl XI. After the reduction, the castle was used as a temporary residence for senior officials before it entered into a period that you're going to tell us more about, which is really cool. Yeah, this is perhaps my favourite thing about this castle, and maybe even Vsing's Ur. So uh, the last days of the castle actually served as a prison for prisoners of war, and this was mainly during the Great Northern War, which we'll absolutely cover on uh, the podcast in dozens of episodes when we get to the 1700s. And this castle was actually Sweden's largest prisoner of war camp during the period 1716 to 1718, with close to 2,000 prisoners being held here, which is amazing when you actually look around at the site here. And most most of these prisoners were Russian. Among them were the Russian generals Ivan Trubotsky and General Golovin. And Ivan Trubotsky was actually the governor of our favorite city of Novgorod back before he was captured. And they were also joined a bit later on by the Russian ambassador to Sweden, Andrei Hilkov. And the high-ranking Russians were kept together in the castle, but they complained about the poor conditions, especially the ambassador. In the eastern wing, most of the upper floor, which composed of a hall, six bedrooms and two drawing rooms, was put at the disposal of General Golovin, along with his 13 of his staff. And likewise, General Trubotsky's suite had space for 17 people, where he lived with his wife and three daughters and staff. And there was a large banquet hall in the east part of the castle, which served around 300 of the regular soldiers. And the ground floor was probably used by Germans, who by the autumn of 1716 were guarding the prisoners of war here. And the, the prisoners were basically quartered in every space available in the castle, including in the cellar, which we're sort of standing by right now, um, looking in through the, the iron gate here. In August 1716, that was when the Russian ambassador came to the castle, and he... Uh, 
uh, didn't really like it very much and he complained to the governor of the castle but it didn't really matter too much because he died the same autumn unfortunately for him his body wasn't taken home until two years later possibly in a prisoner exchange with russia and a sad story about the ambassador was that he'd actually only been the ambassador to sweden for a couple of weeks before the great northern war started and he was then taken prisoner and spent lots of time in various castles and prisons all around sweden before he came to Vising's boy and there were also some danes dutch and englishmen who were captured at various points during the war uh, mainly at sea when they were on their way to st petersburg and held in this castle and it really wasn't a great place because uh, the captives suffered from starvation on several occasions and many of the russians died of hunger around 200 of them dying during the various years that they stayed here and the ambassador wrote about the conditions for prisoners in sweden in general when he wrote back to peter the great in russia in 1703 and he said that it was better to be a prisoner of the turks than the swedes here a russian is of no account they insult and dishonor him i and the generals are under constant guard if anyone needs to go somewhere a guard with a loaded musket is always with him they torture our merchants with heavy labors despite all my representations and then things actually got so bad that the prisoners uh, started revolting about that. And that was because it was not only difficult to make the daily allowance for the prisoners go round, but there often lacked a sufficient amount of basic necessities, or the prices had dramatically increased. For example, the price of firewood in Westergötland or the price of the ferry boat between Gerna and Wiesingsö to carry you over or carry goods over had drastically increased. The worst was the distress of the spring of 1717, which was what provoked this revolt. A couple of hundred prisoners pushed through the guard and escaped from the island. When Carl XII became aware of the ill conditions among the prisoners, he actually intervened and the responsible governor, Major General Yeoy Reinhold Patkul, was charged with his negligence in providing the prisoners with the necessary uh, maintenance in a timely manner and notifying the king of their sufferings. So Patkul was removed from office. Trubetsky and General Golowin, uh, with their respective entourages, were exchanged for your favourite, Chris, the Swedish General Reinhold, who was held by the Russians, and that exchange happened in the autumn of 1718. Yep, Reinhold gets to go home and see Karl XII one more time before he's killed in Norway, but uh, much more on that in a couple of years' time. But in the beginning of 1719, some of these prisoners were then transferred to various locations on the mainland, and a more extensive exchange programme with Russia was started. For those of them, it was good that they got out because on right before Christmas, on the 22nd and 23rd of December 1718, the castle was left in ruins by a devastating fire, which uh, led to it looking what it looks like today. And some people have blamed the Russian prisoners of war, but actually, if you look at the Lieutenant General's investigation, who was on site in the January just following the fire, he determined that the fire was an accident that took place in the German guards' quarters in the northeast corner of the castle and none of the guards at the time put any blame on the prisoners of war 
But the prisoners of war didn't seem to be too keen in trying to put out the fire, um, understandably, I guess. And then the 1,600-ish prisoners who remained at that time were moved to various other places all around Sweden, and they were finally all freed after the peace which ended the Great Northern War in uh, the middle of 1721. And from here, you can actually see a castle that was made by Braha in 1651 on the mainland, uh, which is called Braha Hus Castle. And we drove past that along the motorway. Um, not sure if we're going to have time to stop off there on the way home, but it was very cool too. And it looks like this one. And anything more to say about this castle? It's a castle ruin, but for being ruins, you can actually still kind of make out the layout of the castle and what this would have looked like in the 1600s and a beautiful view out over Lake Vettan. Yeah, we'll do look on our website and on social media for some good pictures. Um, but then we'll see where we go next on Visingsa. Nearby Visingsborg Castle, just as you get off the ferry here on Visingsa, you can't help but notice that there are a lot of oak trees around here. And Visingsa, in fact, has Sweden's largest connected forest of oak. It was all planted here in 1831 to serve the navy for their shipbuilding. So now we make boats and ships out of uh, steel and carbon fiber and plastic and stuff like that. But back then, the majority of ships were made out of oak. So this was actually planted here to serve the shipbuilding needs of the future. But little did they know that we don't really have a oak need and so the forest remains untouched and there's a fun story about how in the last 20 years or so um the swedish forestry agency or whoever it is who looked after these oaks wrote to the king or the navy and said excuse me your oaks are ready now they've matured enough that they can now be used in the navy as sort of a joke but actually fun fact is that some small parts of those uh oaks are being used to make the insides of the uh, new submarine the a26 class of submarines that Sweden are building to keep that tradition going like in the officer's mess I think it is that the lining of the room is being made in that oak tree so the tradition is still living on at least a little bit. That's great because it was a major necessity for Sweden's navy for hundreds of years. Oaks were protected in Magnus Eriksson's landslog, the law of the land from the 1350s. So from then on, it was forbidden to cut down oaks, even if you owned the forest. All oak belonged to the crown, to the navy. The need for oak was so big that in the 1600s, Visingsö here was essentially barren. They had cut down everything. After the peace in Kiel uh, in 1814, when Sweden was fortunate in that sense and got to go into a union with Norway, but also lost the territory in Pomerania in modern-day Germany and Poland, that spelt a, a dire event for the oaks because the majority of the oak that the Navy had used was from Pomerania. So that's when they had a kind of a bit of a, oh no, we have no more oaks, we must plant loads and loads of oaks so we make sure we have some for the Navy. And that's when the oaks here on Visingsö were planted. 
Yeah, and there was this display out there near Visingsborg Castle where it talked about how this man was given the mission to travel around Sweden trying to find the best place to plant all these oaks. And he wrote something like 13 huge books that are all in the state archives all about where the oaks should be planted and stuff. And he said that it was currently a catastrophe for the oaks when he was uh, writing this study. And then he um, told people where to build more oaks. Okie dokie. <laughs> That's quite good. Right, onwards to Ness Castle. So we're now at the very bottom of these things, uh, and we're here at Ness Castle, where you can see almost all the way around in every direction Lake Vetten. We've mentioned this castle in quite a few episodes, 50 episodes ago or something like that. And we also mentioned it in the most recent episode about castles. And that main fact about these things are, was the fact that four Swedish kings died here. Karl Sverkerson, Erik Knutsson, Johan Sverkerson and Magnus III. It was built by Karl VII or perhaps his father Sverker. And it was the first major Swedish castle in the age before Stockholm was really a thing. And it really was was the place to be because it was the first masonry castle in Sweden. And we looked at what castles were used for and lots of our fun details in that episode about castles. So do check out episode 84 for a bit more information on castles in general. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of them are a bit like Nairs Castle is now just a lot of ruins. Uh, but it's still fun to talk about what you can see here. Yeah, so Nairs Castle here on Visingsö was the first major royal castle in Sweden. The location was strategically chosen on the headland here with, like Chris was saying, a view in all directions. It was assumed that enemy attacks would come from the land side, so the defensive wall with its two towers face north or inland on the island. Ness is 5.6 kilometers or 3.5 miles from the shore of the lake on the mainland side. So if someone set sail from the mainland and were going to attack you, you would have spotted that in plenty of time and defend yourself. The castle here is often mentioned as Sweden's oldest royal castle, and it was built during the latter half of the 12th century by, like Chris said, King Sverker the Elder or his son, Karl Sverkerson. And this information is based on old tales and legends where the castle is mentioned. The Icelandic storyteller Snorra Strulason tells in the Icelandic tale Rimbeglo that the castle was the strongest in the whole kingdom and that it was the king's treasury. Unfortunately, archaeological finds have not been able to date the castle more exactly. And the castle was super important during all of those kings' reigns, but it was only during battles between the sons of Magnus Lardulos in 1318 that it was burnt to the ground. And today only very small parts of it remain. We're standing here in the field just outside, and there's sort of two small, maybe 10 meter wide blocks. One of them perhaps the base of a tower that has a prison cell type looking thing in it. Um, but apart from that, it's just a, a pile of bricks and rock really is nothing super fancy so now most of the ruins that did survive have been swallowed up by the lake or have just been uh, grown over by the grass and the king and their entourage would have traveled to this castle a lot of the times even if they uh, weren't based here a lot they would visit it very often and hunting and festivities were organized here but also important meetings and you can imagine you the people working at the castle whilst they could also see attackers coming from a long distance they could see 
the king approaching. So you can imagine them being like, oh, quick, the king's coming. We've got to get the fire going and get the cooking going ready for him to come and visit. And uh, yeah, so it's a really impressive place. Well, not so much now. The location is very impressive and the ruins are quite cool, but you can imagine it being way more impressive back in the day. And uh, one final word we should probably say about Visingzer itself was the fact that the legend says that a giant was going to cross over Lake Vatten, uh, and so he threw a chunk of earth into the ground, which meant that his wife didn't have to jump. She could just step onto the island and cross over without getting her feet wet. That's very uh, considerate of the giant. Gentle giant. Maybe gentle giant. A giant that loved his wife. That was so much fun too. Uh, this trip was really great all around, really. It was really cool learning about the way the castle of Visings Boy was used a little later on in history. I know a lot of our listeners are eager for us to reach the Great Northern War, and so I'm sure they would have enjoyed that little sneak peek at some of the content to come later on in the timeline, and I had no idea that it was used for that, so it was a real big uh, bonus thing for us to, to learn about when we were there. Yeah, and I really liked learning about all the ways that oaks played such an important role in history. And seeing Ness Castle in person was cool too, uh, or at least seeing the two small bits of the castle that's still left in the ruins. Uh, to think that it was once such a royal HQ and that four Swedish king died there, it's quite amazing when you see the ruins that are left today. So beautiful location as well right there on the southern tip of the island. Lots of people hiring bikes and golf buggies to drive around the island to get around and see everything so it was uh, we cheated a bit and had a car but um, hey ho. I don't think there's too much more to say about our trip to Östergötland now, only to say thanks again to everyone who helped host us or show us around, uh, leading a tour or all that kind of stuff. Thank you again. Massive thanks to Lynn for singing for us and thank you to everyone for listening for this uh, little expedition we've been on. Before we go, one final thank you, and that is to The Super Alice on iTunes for a great review, which said... I'm a complete novice to Swedish history, and I'm only five episodes in, but I must say this is very well-paced and informative, and a great balance between fairly deep dives, uh, especially compared to other Scandinavian or Nordic history podcasts I've found, and light chat between a couple of intelligent, personable hosts. Looking forward to the rest of it. Oh, a lovely review. Hope that it doesn't take too long to catch up to this one, although it is a good 80 episodes or so uh, from where you left the review. If you ask me, you are allowed to skip ahead. Chris and I recently had a discussion about this when watching a TV series that came out. I think you're allowed to skip ahead. I don't know. No, definitely not. I think <laughs> I'm definitely someone who likes to listen to all this chronologically uh, when I listen to other similar podcasts. But yeah, we have to agree to disagree. Yeah, I, I do understand, though, why it might be tempting to skip ahead when we have quite a big back catalogue now. But um, yeah, do what you like. Thanks again to everyone we mentioned above. And if you want to get in touch via email or you'd like to say hello or ask a question, our email address is flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter X X Twitter, whatever it's called, <laughs> on at Flatpack Sweden or on Facebook under the same name. Yes, please do get in touch. It's always lovely to hear from 
all our listeners. And Sandy and Saber, there is a mini blooper here at the end of the episode. We know you like bloopers, so stay tuned for that. It, our microphone picked up some background singing outside Linköping Cathedral, so enjoy that little mini blooper. Yeah, I, I laughed a lot when I realized in the edit that it actually caught that what was going on. So just uh, listen for another 60 seconds or so and you'll be able to hear that. Um, but now, yeah, it's just time to say goodbye and see you all next time for some more KKB madness. Uh, it's going to be good. The 1400s keeps on delivering political chaos in Sweden. But for now, it's bye bye from us. Hey, Dor.